0: and thank you for joining us on the Therapy Cable podcast. What you're about to listen to are conversations and interviews on some of the most crucial and important topics in the behavioral and mental health space. It is our mission to help remove the stigmas attached to mental health, psychology, and addiction, one recording at a time. Okay, seems like we are live. I guess everybody, no, we can't. So uh, we are live and I'm answering questions about borderline disorder, disorder, borderline personality disorder. We had to go use uh, my fly phone to go live because our equipment was kind of not working. So this is really the only, let me turn it this way. Uh, this is really the best way of um, going live. So, here what we have is um, a list of questions that came through, and I'm going to go through them and uh, just going to do a short uh, 30 minutes today. It's 5:20, and due to some equipment malfunction, I'm just going to do a brief. Uh, uh, Live coverage. So, the problem of keeping friendship when you have a personality disorder. Sooner or later, the friends will turn into enemies full of information about your, ourselves that generates a great feeling of being afraid and stabbed in the back. With all the friends, this happens, but with many, uh, this goes uh, away and will come back. So, basically, uh, what I'm understanding is someone being concerned if they are, are in a relationship with someone with borderline personality disorder or even a, any type of a personality disorder and um, and then after a while that friend turns back on them uh, then become en- enemies and they have a lot of information uh, so what to do about it so well, yeah, that is that is the case with any friendship, really. Um, a lot of people would tell you to be careful whom you trust for a reason, right? So I think um, part of the conversation here needs to be, or my suggestion recommendation would be uh, to heed that old adage that you want to, uh, make sure that trust is earned one step at a time. So trust is earned one step at a time if we uh, walk the relationship one, sp- one step at a time. So we kind of trust a little bit with some information and see how our friend reacts and uh, and kind of earns that trust over time, earns their position and their situation with uh, with us, within the relationship, uh, if we can trust even more, if we can go further with that relationship, and if we don't see any red flags popping up, then we can go further and trust even more. And and the main thing about trust and relationship, I would say, there's also the notion of power. You know, if people don't have power over us, they could have information, and they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, they can't really come and backstab uh, us or uh, hurt us. So uh, that's the other part. So I guess really there are two parts. One is the quality, quantity of that information, and the other part, <coughs> I'm sorry, is the um, power position. So, for instance, if we are friends but also we have another relationship, for instance, co-workers. Being a boss or employee can complicate that relationship because of power positions. A boss can fire an employee. Um, If we have a family relationship based on birth orders or parental versus uh, child relationship, Uh, a parent-child relationship There is a power imbalance. Um, Within a marriage, spouses usually have different powers and different um, assets, if you will, that that gives them powers, you know. And uh, Mm -hmm. so that's the other part that we need to really pay attention to uh, if we have secured our position within the relationship where we can negotiate based on the benefits that we more or less provide, and those basically assets, those strengths, if you will, that we provide in a the relationship, then we have some kind of a power that uh, would be respected, that would be um, a source of security to fall back on, a safety net, uh, to be able to perhaps negotiate the extent of the uh, possible damage that we would, um, if a friendship turns into kind of a frenemy, if you will, or enemies type of a situation, adversarial relationship, that we could negotiate a amicable separation or kind of a, um, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, a silent, um, peaceful uh, distance between the parties. So. Uh, personality disorders—they can't, you know—we we can't have a guarantee against uh, somebody not showing or developing personality disorders, um, because first of all, it is very difficult to detect uh, actual disorders. There, uh, as we have mentioned before, people have traits and uh, characteristics, styles flavors, if you will, of personality disorders or uh, extreme uh, dysfunctional traits, uh, and if, if the minimum number of those dysfunctional traits pile up, ultimately they become characteristic of a very specific category of a personality disorder. Others may have uh, small traits and not enough of symptoms and signs of a full-blown personality disorder. So uh, to give you an example, let's say when we were talking about schizoid personality disorder where the person does not have a desire to be connected to others, to be in groups, to be uh, reaching out to other human beings and kind of interact and engage with them. Uh, Which, you know, the sign can be evident if someone would. Uh, shy away from groups, want to just spend time with themselves, they don't want to be part of a social gathering and Mm -hmm. engagement. So if that's the case, uh, is it just a trait, is it just situational or is it an actual presented disorder? How can we tell? From the very beginning of a relationship, many behaviors can appear as if they are extreme. But it may not be really that extreme because of the frequency, intensity, depth, the um, uh, sin- uh, severity of the problem and situation that appears. So let's say you go on a date and, you're, or, uh, and you get to know someone non-romantically and just a friendship develops. And in the beginning, you notice that this person is not that much into, you know, social gatherings and getting out, engaging with people. It's like kind of a loner. You know, doesn't like to be lonesome and uh, lonely and, and by themselves isolated, kind of hiding uh, in their own room or, or their home. Uh, they don't get out much and don't like to get out much and be part of the social activity. So uh, you may have to just weigh, the, like what I mentioned, the intensity, frequency, severity, and actual problem, more or less if it is socially normative. You know, let's uh, say you have uh, usually uh, around holidays or um, good reasons such as uh, certain um, important days, like a, let's say someone's birthday, or again like a celebratory type of a day that people get together, and you're inviting someone. And so, if, you're, if there's good reason for somebody not to show up once or twice, fine, right? So that you can understand that. But if they simply refuse to go to any of these gatherings, regardless of the normative reasons, such as a celebratory birthday or holiday or occasion, and uh, it becomes quite um, disruptive and an impediment to the health of the relationship, because simply uh, the person kind of refuses to really just engage in... More or less acceptable uh, norms of uh, social engagement, and and being a, uh, uh, a good friend or companion, or even show interest if they in in in, uh, in uh, let's say your uh, important, significant uh, priorities that you have in life to engage with other people. Then ultimately. Uh, these signs pile up to a point where you would have to really draw the line. And certainly it may take time. So we have to be vigilant. You know, people can, if they're not paying attention to these signs from the very beginning, and if they're not connecting these dots and just kind of randomly uh, think of these um, um, signs as Uh, as innocent and innocuous and uh, less important or significant then they are missing out something. So it is important in even building a relationship to pay attention to details, to, uh, to the details of the interaction between people. And also it is important that a person educate themselves about personality disorders because Someone who doesn't know personality disorders, ultimately the spectrum, the depth and width and breadth of uh, personality disorders, then how are they supposed to detect it? The signs might be glaring them in the in the face and uh, staring them in the face, and uh, they just kind of you know ignore it. They, they have no clue what they're looking at. Um, so it goes hand in hand, trusting. Uh, assessing the uh, situation, being vigilant, uh, knowing the knowledge, having that background uh, database and knowledge base to be able to compare these signs and characteristics against. And then uh, 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 more or less having an equal powerful position in the relationship where Having the knowledge, having, uh, uh, you know, observed these signs and symptoms uh, can then educate a person and inform them as to what the next step needs to be, such as investing more trust in the relationship or less trust, investing uh, more um, resources and energy in gaining more power or giving up some power and uh, and basically allowing the relationship to, to go to the next level um, so let's move on with the next question can you please suggest some coping mechanisms for a spouse with BPD or borderline personality disorder so some uh, suggestions I would have is a uh, coping that's a, that's a very good you know label that has been used here because um, you know spouse really has to have their own uh, security blanket, if you will, their own sense of groundedness, their own um, occupation, if you will, or preoccupation, their own ways of coping with what they're being thrown at. And also, you know, uh, really kind of remaining a functional, uh, competent, effective um uh, kind of an anchor in that relationship so uh, so some of the coping certainly is a uh, i would say a, a self care for sure the to the point where independently of your spouse um person would be uh, busy enough with certain Daily activities that are uh, revolving around the self, the person, the partner. So, uh, so not the partner with the BPD, but the the other partner. So, uh, you would have to either you know spend at least I would say 10 to 12 hours a day being busy with work, with hobbies, with activities, with other human beings, with uh, other in, within other relationships, uh, and I, I mean in a healthy way, not that you would, for instance, cheat on your partner and betray your partner. Uh, especially here, we are talking about a spouse of the borderline personality. Uh, so, um, the self care allows to kind of replenish the energy that you need to more or less take the heat when you engage with your spouse within the relationship. That allows you to kind of keep a healthy distance yet not to be too distant and and not to be ignorant, not to be completely oblivious and um, uh, ignoring your partner but uh, really kind of engaging with them to to an extent that you don't feel too, both of you don't feel too distant and too enmeshed, too close to each other. Uh, Self-care is very important. And then beyond self-care, educating yourself about, you know, the whole notion of borderline personality uh, and and the details. How is this uh, ups and downs, these repetitive cycles of admiration versus devaluation of black and white thinking? Uh, being triggered? How is it being maintained? So having the ability to uh, non-judgmentally in a non-critical fashion to kind of understand and empathize with the pain that your partner is actually going through with their own emotional dysregulation internally and uh, and help the partner to uh, gain some skills and tools to, to regulate themselves, you know that it is in their own benefit not to get uh, too agitated and upset about certain situations, and and at times if it is necessary to get greatly agitated and upset and frustrated, how to do it in a very harm reduction, reductive way, if you will, so that they are not uh, burning bridges, that they are not destroying everything in their lives, so they they can you can provide some validation for the fact that if they are extremely um, uh, you know aggravated because they feel truly um, you know betrayed for instance that you, you, you a lot of times you have that sense with people with borderline personality because just because they're uh, somebody disagrees with them and sees things differently they feel abandoned rejected and betrayed so which is you know um, generally regarded like unreasonable and irrational, but uh, that's the thing. Within the the reality of the person with borderline personality, they truly feel as if it is happening. It's not like um, to them they have a doubt that maybe I'm wrong, maybe it is not happening. The internal pain is that is quite subjective. It seems very objective to them, right? so they feel justified in actually feeling that pain. And anyone telling them, "Well, don't feel the pain and calm down, and you know, don't hurt yourself," is uh, almost counterproductive and counterintuitive. So, uh, so if they had a mechanism, and then that's how the spouse can help them by validation that you know you have on the right that you want and need to be upset if you truly feel uh, you know, betrayed or let down, uh, rejected about a certain situation by, let's say, a partner. Uh, so, but then what is a healthy way, a non-destructive, non-self-destructive way of actually expressing that emotion? So rather than taking a gun and going around and shooting people or hurting people or breaking things, what you could do is, uh, in kind of think up of uh, come up with a, um, a few uh, mechanisms how to express that anger. For one person, it could be you know going out and and exerting energy, like going through the gym, you know, workout, um, exercise, so things like that. For another person, maybe more like a Uh, in physical activity that also is um, more or less um, combative in nature many people, you know, engage, let's say, in in some kinds of like boxing, martial arts, kickboxing, wrestling and this and that because within that more or less impactful, you know, uh, exerting impact or enforcing impact on others which is within an acceptable li- limit of responsibility, like, let's say, in a kickboxing that two people agree to go and kick at each other. So at, at times, that uh, confrontational um, winning over a match by itself may be enough for them to kind of release that anger and frustration. Not the best, not the best, I completely agree. It's not like I'm promoting that or condoning it, but. That is, you know, fortu- unfortunately or sometimes fortunately, is the reality. So uh, we have to uh, deal with reality. So for some people, that may be the solution without, again, harming anybody. Maybe they can contain and limit their, their frustration and expression of anger and frustration within a, a completely acceptable uh, set of rules, uh, rather than, let's say, taking the whole anger on their kids and children and and spouses, and maybe pets, and things like that, right? Um, for others, maybe um, a, a, a writing, you know, writing about this, all their anger, frustration, um, agitation, and pain that they're experiencing. For some people, maybe recording, like maybe record a video, an audio, and kind of, again, uh, registering it, like uh, putting it down in some kind of a format that has legitimacy and validation. Um, and even turning that into advocacy. So if this person is truly feels wronged by someone else, rather than ignoring it, let's say going through the process of legally, ethically um, standing up for their rights may be actually very healing to them. You know, rather than feeling victimized, they feel like I'm doing something about this egregious injustice that has been uh, delivered on me. Um, for others may be completely different, some kind of a, let's say, meditation and uh, uh, relaxation. Uh, Certainly therapy, right? But rather than just immediately jumping to a conclusion that if you are so angry, agitated, and, you know, up and down, and can't control yourself, and you you feel all this, go to therapy. Everything is going to be solved. You want to first, really help your spouse with the borderline personality to uh, feel validated that it's not like their subjective reality is completely out of whack but there is some truth to it and the pain is real even though there is a lot of misperception, misconception, kind of um, miscommunication going on uh, but the pain is nevertheless real. And they they should come up with a series, a list of things that have worked for them in the past, and with some adaptation may work better in the future. Uh, so that by itself, I think, is very important. The coping mechanisms that you're talking about, and then again, for the spouse to seek therapy themselves, to go to a professional, to be able to, you know, learn ways of understanding the partner and. Uh, balancing it against our, their own self-care, and then, um, lastly, what I would say, as far as a coping mechanism is concerned, is to really um, find ways, what we call a solution-oriented type of a therapy or mechanism. Like, find ways. Like, what are the times in the relationships that problems don't occur? Like, let's say if the times are. Usually, for instance, evenings, you know, like in the morning, usually during the day, in the morning, fights happen, sparks fly. So the probability is higher for those agitated moments and issues to get out of hand during the daytime. So you could minimize the interactions with your spouse uh, during the daytime. So it would be a quick in and out, quick high and by get throughout the day and then because you have observed that throughout your relationship with your spouse evenings somehow things work out both of you are in a better place both of you are in a my better mindset and can relax and maybe communicate differently about the situation so in that case then uh, focusing on the solution meaning if the solutions are somehow around the time, of uh, you know the evening then let's spend more time during that time and also focus on what else is happening during that time that usually leads to solutions and to a better relationship and a more peaceful interaction rather than explosive interactions. So uh, find what works and I gave one example which was the time frame. There are multiple other examples such as let's say you may say something like if we uh, write everything down. Things becomes easier. You know, we have a better way of communicating if is everything written down. If we um, don't have the kids around us, or if we do have the kids around us, usually things turn out better. So look up the, make an inventory of solutions of better times that have existed in your past in your past relationship with your spouse and do more of that. Do more of what leads to the solution. Do more of what leads to problem solving. If it is for instance you notice that anytime if you you, for instance, yourself gave a heads up about a certain plan to your partner, ultimately it would the negotiation around that plan would not lead to a fight, then you remember that and then you always engage in more of that, or giving heads up, giving informing your partner ahead of time, you know, uh, letting them know and uh, uh, kind of arranging plans in that particular way. Uh, these are a couple of examples. Um, so let's see, it's 5.45. We have probably have another, we wanted to do another five minutes. Um, so what I'm going to do is read the last one, or actually the third question, and then answer that and finish it up. So, um, okay, my ex-girlfriend has BPD and has suicidal thoughts. What advice would you give for what I can do to help? So, first of all, <coughs> that's an ex-girlfriend, so that's a li- little bit of different type of a relationship because again, the relationship apparently has ended, so it, it becomes more of an you know ex-to-ex relationship rather than present people who are much more intimately involved with one another, Uh, you want to take into consideration a lot of contextual elements. Is that ex-girlfriend in a relationship or not? Um, How would your attempt to help uh, come across as a probably innuendo and a sign for you to want to enter into the relationship again or not? Uh, would it hurt more or hurt less? And by hurt meaning, I mean, would it harm, would it lead to any more harm or less harm? Because again, like if your ex was suicidal, maybe many of those um, suicidal ideation thoughts were triggered by elements that were present in that type of relationship with you involved. So you may want to consider that. Maybe staying away would be one good option to not, uh, to help basically, to not trigger more of those sources for the suicidal thoughts or ideation. And then, uh, but if you have taken a few of these, as I mentioned, and other um, um, parameters into consideration, then what I would go further would be okay, well, if you know the uh, circumstances around those suicidal thoughts. And, uh, and you can go uh, in a few ways about it. One is if you are in somehow in some kind of a connection, then is informing, educating the ex-girlfriend, giving the resources to take care of themselves is one of the best options. You know, a phone number to a suicidal hotline, a book, uh, an audio tape, uh, a CD, uh, some kind of uh, information, a pamphlet about life being worth living, and that there are options, and people should uh, consider suicide as last uh, resort. And there are at least a hundred other options before suicide. Um, so, instilling hope, giving resources, um, giving them some validation. You know, they're telling them that um, even though you have had a bad relationship or good relationship in the past that has multi- ultimately not worked out, you still care about them. I mean, you still believe that they're. They are uh, valuable and they are worth life, worth living. They are a valuable person that uh, deserves a, a good chance at life. So that by itself in the sense of validation is uh, many times helpful. Um, and, uh, and also getting some support, like maybe um, you know, sharing with uh, some people who are confidants, who are trustworthy. Uh, in terms of family members to to help to get them to be aware, at least, that this person uh, has had suicidal thoughts in the past, and uh, kind of brainstorming, bringing more or less a whole community together to brainstorm about possible communities. What I mean by that is a small group of people who care. And um, but then lastly, if, uh, let's say, you're really not in a relationship, you feel that this person, you know, have somehow heard maybe saw a Facebook post or something, that they, they're hurting themselves or want to hurt themselves, then informing the authorities, you know, it's never too late to save a life, even at the cost of maybe getting that person pissed off at you, and maybe just the relationship going to bunkers. But. Uh, uh, at least, you know, in, uh, alerting the authorities that there may be somebody who may be at the end of their ropes and they really would need a hand and uh, that usually most of the time turns out to be the better choice. A person who is probably suicidal would uh, benefit from that and kind of come back from the, you know, uh, down from the gutters and uh, revisit the situation and be thankful that somebody saved them. So. I think uh, that's pretty good. It's 5:50. As we said, we will do 30 minutes. Thank you for watching. And I'm here to answer more questions. There are three more questions. We'll answer those next week, Thursday, 5 p.m. Hopefully, we will not have technical problems. Thank you for watching. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Therapy Cable Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast provider. To view the entire videos of these episodes, visit us online at therapycable.com and send us an email about your thoughts and topic suggestions.